A Halloween Wraith by William Black. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. A Halloween Wraith by William Black. 1. The vast bulk of Ben Cleverick was dark in shadow, but the wide waters of Loch Naver shone a soft silver grey in the moonlight, as Hector McIntyre, keeper and forester in the far solitudes of Glencorn, came striding along the road toward Invermoodal. As he approached the little hamlet, which consists merely of the inn and its surroundings, and one or two capers' cottages, certain small points of red told him of its whereabouts among the black trees, and as he drew still nearer, he thought he would let the good people there know of his coming. Hector had brought his pipes with him, for there were to be great doings on this Halloween night, and now, when he had inflated the bag and tuned the drones, there sprang into the profound silence reigning everywhere around this wild skirl of the hills of Glenorque. Surely the sound would reach and carry its message. If not, here was Giliadrova, played still more bravely, and again the proud strains of the Glen's mine, by which time he had got near to the inn, and was about to turn down from the highway by the semicircular drive passing the front door, but here he suddenly encountered a fearful sight. From out of the dusk of the wall surrounding the front garden, there came three luminous objects, three globes of a dull saffron hue, and on each of these appeared the features of a face, eyes, mouth and nose, all flaming and fire. On beholding this terrible thing, the tall, brown-bearded forester turned and fled, and the pipes told of his dismay, for they shrieked and groaned and made all sorts of indescribable noises, as if they too were in mortal alarm. Then Mrs. Moray's three children, with victorious shouts of laughter, pursued the tall forester, and kept waving before them the hollowed-out turnips with a bit of candle burning within. When he had got up to the corner of the road, Hector turned and addressed the children, who had come crowding round him, holding up their flaming turnips, to cause him still further dismay. Well now, said he, in the Gaelic, there is a fearful thing to alarm any poor person with. Were you not thinking I should die of fright? And the pipes squealing as well, for they never saw anything like that before. But never mind, we are going down to the house now. And do you know, Roland and Isabel, and you little Shana, do you know, I have brought you some of the fir tops that grow in Glengorm. For it is a wonderful place, Glengorm, and the fir tops that grow on the larches there are not as the fir tops that grow anywhere else. They are very small, and they are round, and some are pink, and some are blue, and some are black and white, and some others, why, they have an almond inside them. Oh, it is a wonderful place, Glengorm. But it is not always you can get the fir tops from the larches. It is only on some great occasion like the Halloween night. And let me say now, if I put any of them in my pocket, here, Ronald, take the pipes from me and hold them properly on your shoulder, for one day you will be playing Miss Ramsay Stratspe as well as any one, and I will search my pockets and say if I put any of those wonderful furred tops into them. The children knew very well what all this preamble meant, but neither they nor their elders could have told how it was that Hector McIntyre, every time he came to Invermoodal, brought with him packages of sweetmeats, though he lived in one of the most inaccessible districts in, in Sutherland. Glengorm being about two-and-twenty miles away from anywhere. However, here was a precious little parcels, 
and when they had been distributed hector took his pipes again and escorted by his small friends went down to the inn well mr moray the innkeeper had also heard the distant carol of the pipes and here he was at the door how are you hector he asked in gaelic what is your news there is not much news in glengorm was the answer and when is your wedding to be mr moray said we will make a grand day of that hector and i have been thinking i will get some of the lads to kindle a bonfire on the top of ben clebrig a fire that they will see down in rosshire and there's many a pistol and many a gun will make a crack when you drive up to this door and bring your bride in for i am one who believes in the old customs and whether it is a wedding or the new year or halloween night i am for the old ways and the free church ministers can say what they like now come away and hector my lad and take a dram after your long walk there is plenty of hard work before you this evening for johnny has broken his fiddle and the lasses have not been asked to dance up a reel for many a day and then he paused and said and how is flora campbell hector have you any news of her no said the forester in something of an undertone and his face looked troubled i have had no letter for a while back and i do not know what it means her sister that lives in grenock has taken ill and flora said she must go down from oban to see her and that is the last i have heard if i knew her sister's address in grenock i would write and ask flora why there was no letter so long but if you send a letter to one called mary campbell in such a big place as grenock what use is it but no news is good news hector said mr moray cheerfully and therewith he led the way through a stone corridor into the great kitchen where a considerable assemblage of lads and lasses were engaged in noisy merriment and pastime the arrival of the tall forester and his pipes were hailed with general satisfaction but there was no call as yet for the inspiring music in fact this big kitchen was given over to the games of the children and the younger boys and girls a barn had been prepared for supper and for the celebration of occult halloween rites when the time came for their elders to take part in the festivities at present there was a large tub filled with water placed in the middle of the floor and there were apples in it and the youngsters with their hands behind their backs were trying to snatch out an apple with their teeth there was many a sousing of heads of course in excellent trial of temper while sometimes a bolder white than usual would pursue his prize to the bottom and try to fasten upon it there or some shy young damsel would cunningly shove the apple over to the side of the tub and succeed by mother wit where masculine courage had failed then from the roof suspended by a cord hung a horizontal piece of wood at one end of which was an apple at the other a lighted tallow candle and when the cord had been twisted up and set free again causing the transverse piece of wood to whirl around the competitor was invited to snatch with his mouth at the apple failing to do which secured him a rap on the cheek from the guttering candle there were all sorts of similar diversions going forward the origin and symbolism of them little dreamt of by these light-hearted lads and lasses when little isabel murray came up to the big handsome good-natured looking forester from glengorm will you burn a nut with me hector she said kindly indeed i will isabel if you will take me for your sweetheart said he in reply and now we will go to the fire and see whether we are to be at peace and friendship all our lives they went to the hearth they put the two nuts among the blazing pates and awaited the response of the oracle could any augury have been more auspicious the two nuts lay together burning steadily and quickly a soft loaf flame no angry sputtering no sudden explosion and separation 
Now do you see that lamb of my heart, said the tall forester, using a familiar Gaelic phrase. And no doubt the little lass was very highly pleased. However, at this moment up came Mrs. Murray, with the announcement that the children might continue at their games some time longer, but that the grown-up folk were wanted in the barn, where supper was waiting them. It was a joyous scene. The huge peat fire was blazing brightly. The impoverished chandelier was studded with candles. There were a couple of lamps on the long table, which were otherwise most sumptuously furnished. And when Hector McIntyre, in his capacity of piper, had played the people into the stirring strains of the Marchioness of Tweeddale's delight, he put the papes aside and went and took the seat that had been reserved for him by the side of the fair-haired Nelly, who was very smartly dressed for this great occasion, as befitting the reigning beauty of the neighbourhood. "'You'll be sorry that Flora is not here to-night,' said the fair-haired damsel, rather saucily, to her brown-bearded companion. "'And no one to take her place. I suppose there was no one in Sutherland good enough for you, Hector, that you must take up with the lass from Eisley and there is little need for you to dip your slave in the burn and hang it up to dry when you go to bed, so that the fire may show you your sweetheart, for well you know already who that is. Well, well, you will have no heart for the merry-making to-night, for a lad that has a sweetheart away in the south has no heart for anything. You'll just mind this, Nelly, said the forester, not to carry your merry-making too far this night. Alistair Ross, he continued, glancing down the table toward the huge rough red-bearded drover who was seated there, is not the man to be made a fool of, and if that young fellow Semple does not take heed, he will find himself gripped by the waist some fine dark evening and flung into Loch Naver. Oh, you are like all the rest, Hector, said the coquettish Nelly, with some impatience. Every one of you is jealous of Johnny Semple, because he is neatly dressed, and has good manners, and is civil-spoken. What is he doing here at all? said Hector, with a frown. Is it a fine thing to see a young man idling about a place with his hands in his pockets, just because his uncle is the landlord? If he has learned his fine manners in the towns, why does he not earn his living in the towns? He is no use here. Oh, no, said Nelly, with a toss of her head. Perhaps he is not much use on the hill. Perhaps he could not set traps and shoot hooks. But he knows all the new songs from the theatre, and he can dance more steps than any one in Sutherland. Well, this is what I am telling you, Nelly, the companion said with some firmness. I do not know what there is between you and Alistair Ross. If there is anything, as people say, then do not make him an angry man. Let Simple alone. An honest lass should beware of a town dandy like that. Here this private little conversation was interrupted by Mr. Murray, who rose at the head of the table and called upon the company to fill their glasses. He wished to drink with them, as they did not seem loath. When Hector and his pretty companion found opportunity to resume their talk, he discovered that Nelly was in quite a different mood. Well, now it is a good thing, Hector, that everyone knows that you and Flora are to be married, for I can talk to you without Alistair getting red in the face with rage. And when we go out to pull the cabbage stalks, will you go with me? I know the way into the garden better than you, and we can both go blindfold if you will take my hand. But what need is there for you to pull a cabbage stalk, lass? said he. Do you not know already what like your husband is to be? Again the pretty Nelly tossed her head. Who can tell what is to happen in the world? And maybe you would rather not pull a stalk that was tall and straight and strong. That would mean Alistair, said the companion, glancing at her suspiciously. Maybe you would rather find you had got hold of a withered old stump with a lot of earth at the root, a decrepit old man with plenty of money in the bank. Or maybe you are wishing for one that is slim and supple and not so tall. 
for one that might mean Johnny Simple. I am wishing to know who the man is to be, and that is all, said Nellie, with some affectation of being offended. And what harm can there be in doing what everyone else is doing? However, not all Nellie's blandishments and petulant coquetries could induce Hector McIntyre to take part in this appeal to the divinations of the Kailyard, for when after supper the lads and lasses went away blindfold to pull the castock that was to reveal to them the figure and circumstances of their future spouse, the big forester remained to have a quick smoke with the married capers and shepherds who had no interest in such matters. It was noticed that he was unusually grave, he who was ordinarily one of the lightest of the light-hearted. Naturally, they put it down to the fact that among all the merry-making and sweet-hearting and spying into the future of the young people, he alone had no companion, or rather not the companion whom he would have wished to have. For Flora, the young girl whom he was to marry, had left in Bermudal for the south in the preceding autumn, and when they had asked if Flora was quite well, and when he had answered, oh yes, there was nothing further to be said. 2. Now, on All Hallows' Eve, there is one form of incantation which is known to be extremely, nay, terribly potent when all others have failed. You go out by yourself, taking a handful of hemp seed with you. You get to a secluded place and begin to scatter the seed as you walk along the road. You say, Hemp seed, I sow thee. Hemp seed, I sow thee. He who is to be my true love, appear now and show thee. And if you look furtively over your shoulder, you will behold the desired apparition following you. When Nellie came back from consulting the oracle of the Kailyard, it appeared that she had received what oracles generally vouchsafe, a doubtful answer. What kind of custard did you pull, Nellie? Hector asked of her. Well, said she, it is not much one way or the other. No, I cannot tell anything by it. But I am going out now to sow the hemp seed, Hector. I shall be far too frightened to look over my shoulder. And this is what I want you to do for me. You will stop at the door of the inn and hide yourself and I will go up the road and sow the hemp seed, and if anything appears, you will see it. Will you do that, Hector? It is a clear night. You will be sure to see if there is anything. He did not seem in the mood for taking part in these superstitious observances, but he was good-natured, and eventually followed her to the door. The little walled garden in front of Invermudal Inn is shaped like a horseshoe, the two ends of the semicircle touching the main highway at some distance apart. He saw Nelly go up toward the main road, and looked after her absently and without interest. Nay, he was so little thinking of his promised watch, that as she was some time over the sowing of the hemp-seed, he left the shadow of the inn-door, and strolled away up the main road by the other fork of the semicircular drive. It was a beautiful clear moonlit night. His thoughts were far away from the Halloween diversions. He was recalling other evenings long ago, when Cleverig, as now, seemed joining earth and heaven, and when there was no sound but the murmuring of the burns to the trackless heather. The highway up there was white before him. On the other side was a plantation of young firs, black as jet. Not even the cry of a startled bird broke this perfect stillness. The wide world of mountains and lochs and moor was plunged in sleep profound. All at once his pipe, that he happened to be holding in his hand, dropped to his feet. There before him in the white highway, and between him and the black belt of the firs stood Flora Campbell, regarding him with eyes that said nothing, but only stared in a somewhat sad way, as it seemed. He was not paralyzed with terror at all. He had no time to ask himself what she was doing here, or how she had come here. Flora Campbell, standing there in the road, and looking at him in silence. And then the horror came when suddenly he saw that the white highway was empty. 
He began to shake and shiver as if with extremity of cold. He did not move. He could not move. He knew what had happened to him now. Flora Campbell's wraith had appeared to him. But with what message? The steady gaze of her eyes had told him nothing. If they were anything, they were mournful. Perhaps it was a token of farewell. Perhaps it was an intimation of death. Hardly knowing what he did, and trembling in every limb, he advanced a step or two, so that he could command the whole length of the highway. There was no sign of any living thing there. He could not recall how it was she first appeared. He could not tell in what manner she had gone away. He only knew that for a few moments before, Flora had been regarding him with steady plaintive eyes, and that now he was alone with this moonlit road and black plantation, and Cleberg rising far into the silent heavens. Then there arose in his heart a wild resolve, that whatever this thing might portend, he must instantly make way for the South, to seek out Flora Campbell herself. She had something to say to him, surely, though those mournful eyes conveyed no intelligible message. Hey, if she were dead, if this were but a mute farewell, must he not know? Dazed, bewildered, filled with terrible misgivings of he knew not what, he slowly went back to the inn. He had some vague instinct that he must ask Mr. Murray for the loan of a stick if he were to set out now to cross the leagues of wild and mountainous country that lie between Invermoodal and the sea. Mr. Murray, as a chance, was at the door. "'God's sakes, Hector! What is the matter with you?' he exclaimed in alarm, for there was a strange look in his face. "'I have seen something this night,' was the answer, spoken slowly and in an undertone. "'Nonsense! Nonsense!' the innkeeper said. The heads of the young people are filled with foolishness on Halloween, as every one knows. But you, you are not to be frightened by their stories. It has not to do with Halloween, said Hector, still with his eyes fixed on the ground, as if seeking to recall something. Do you know what I have seen this night? I have seen the wraith of Flora Campbell, aye, as clear as daylight. I do not believe it, Hector, said Mr. Murray. You have been hearing all those stories of the witches and fairies on Halloween, until your own head has been turned. Why, where did you see the wraith? Up there in the road, and as clear as daylight, for that is the truth. It was Flora herself. The tall forester made answer, not argumentatively, but as merely stating a fact that he knew. And did she come forward to you, or did she go away from you? Mr. Murray asked curiously. I, I am not sure, Hector said, after a little hesitation. No, I could not say. Perhaps I was not thinking of her, but all at once I saw her between me and the plantation in the middle of the road, and for a moment I was not frightened. I thought it was Flora herself, and she was gone. For you know what they say, Hector, Mr. Murray continued. When a wraith appears, it is to tell you of a great danger, and if it comes forward to you, then the danger is over. But if it goes away from you, the person is dead. Aye, aye, I've heard that too, Hector murmured, as if in sombre reverie. Then he looked up and said, I am going away to the south. Well, now, that is unfortunate, Hector, the good-natured innkeeper said to him, for tomorrow the mail comes north, and you will have to wait till the next day for the mail going south, to take you to the lair to catch the train. I will not wait for the mail, answered the forester, who indeed knew little about travelling by railway. Tomorrow is Wednesday. It is the day the big steamer starts from Loch Inver. Perhaps I may be in time. Loch Inver? the other exclaimed. And how are you going to get to Loch Inver from here, Hector? Across the forest, was the simple reply. Across the Ray forest and down by Loch Asint. 
that will be a fearful journey through the night i cannot rest here hector said you will make some excuse for me to the lads and lasses i will leave my pipes long woodock will do very well with them and i will thank you to lend me a stick mr murray for it will be a rough walk before i have done mr murray did more than that he got his wife to make up a little packet of food to which he added a flask of whisky and these he took out for the young man along with the shepherd's staff of stout hazel good-bye hector said he i hope you will find all well in the south i do not know about that the forester answered in an absent sort of fashion but i must go and see there will be no peace of mind for me there would not be one moment's space for me otherwise for who knows what flora wanted to say to me three it was an arduous task he had set before him for nine men out of ten it would have been an impossible one but this young forester's limbs knew not what fatigue was and in his heart there burned a longing that could not be assuaged nor in ordinary circumstances would the loneliness of this night journey have mattered to him but his nerves had been unstrung by the strange thing that had happened and now as he followed the shepherd's track that led away into the higher moorlands south of the mudal river he was conscious of some mysterious influence surrounding him that was of far more immediate concern than the mere number of miles some forty or fifty he had to accomplish before noon of the next day those vast solitudes into which he was penetrating were apparently quite voiceless and lifeless and yet he felt as if they knew of his presence and were regarding him a white stone on a dark heather-covered knoll would suddenly look like a human face or again he would be startled by the moonlight shining on a small turn set among the black peat hogs there was no moaning of the wind but there was a distant murmuring of water the rills were whispering to each other in the silence as for the mountains those lone sentinels ben loyal and ben hope and ben he they also appeared to be looking down upon the desolate plain but he did not hate them they were too far away it was the objects near him that seemed to know he was here and to take certain shapes as he went by soon he was without even a shepherd's track to guide him but he knew the lay of the land and he held on in a line that would avoid the locks the deeper burns and the steep heights of miel and amare the moonlight was of great help indeed at this period of his long through the night tramp he was chiefly engaged in trying to recall how it was he first became sensible that flora campbell's wraith appeared before him he saw again surely he would never forget to his dying day the most insignificant feature of the scene the stone wall of the garden the white road the wire fence of the other side and the black plantation of spruce and pine what had he been thinking about not about nelly she was some distance in another direction busy with her charms and incantations no he could not tell the sudden apparition had startled him out of all memory but what he was most anxious to convince himself was that the phantom had come toward him rather than gone away from him ere it disappeared mr murray's words had sunk deep though he himself had been aware of the familiar superstition but now all his endeavours to summon up an accurate recollection of what had taken place were of no avail he knew not how he first became conscious that the wraith was there flora campbell herself as it seemed to him nor how it was he suddenly found himself alone again he had been terrified out of his senses he had no power of observation left this phantasm that looked so like a human being that regarded him with pathetic eyes that had some mysterious message to communicate and yet was silent had vanished as it had appeared he could not tell how the hours went by the moon was sinking toward the western hills 
and still he toiled on through his pathless waste, sometimes getting into treacherous swamps, again having to ford burns swollen by the recent rains. He was soaked through to the waist, but little he heeded that. His thoughts were of his steamer that was to leave Lochinver the next day. With the moon going down, darkness was slowly resuming her reign, and it became more difficult to make out the landmarks. But, at all events, the heavens remained clear, and he had the guidance of the stars. And still steadily and patiently and manfully he held on, getting across the streams that fed Loch Fiodag without much serious trouble, until eventually he struck the highway running southward from Loch Llyn, and knew that so far at least he was in the right direction. Leaving the Cory Kinloch road again, he had once more to plunge into the trackless wilderness of rock and swamp and moorland, and the further he went through the black night, the less familiar was he with the country, for he had a general knowledge, and what matters half a dozen miles one way or the other. If only the dawn could show him Ben Moore on his left, and always before him the silver-grey waters of Loch Ascent. He was less conscious now of the sinister influences of the lonely solitudes. His nervous apprehensions had given way before this dogged resolve to get out of the western shores in time to catch the steamer. All his attention was given to determining his course by the vague outlines of the higher hills. A wind had arisen, a cold, raw wind it was, but he cared nothing for that, unless indeed it should bring a smore of rain and obliterate the landmarks altogether. How anxiously he prayed for the dawn, if this wind were to bring driving mists of rain, blotting out both earth and heaven, and limiting his visions to the space of moorland immediately surrounding him, where would be his guidance then? He could not grope his way along the slopes that lie beneath Lochman's carrier, nor yet across the streams that fall into Loch Fion. So all the more resolutely he held on, while as yet he could make out something of the land, dark against the tremulous stars. Again and again he turned his head and scanned the east with a curious mingling of impatience and hope and longing, and at last, to his unspeakable joy, he was able to convince himself that the horizon there was giving up faint signs of the coming dawn. He went forward with a new confidence, with a lighter step. The horror of these awful solitudes would disappear with the declaring day. Surely, surely, when the world had grown white again, he would behold before him not this terrible black loneliness of mountains and mere, but the pleasant abodes of men and trees in the western ocean, and the red funnel steamer with its welcome smoke. The grey light in the east increased. He began to make out the features of the ground near him. He could tell a patch of heather from a deep hole, and could choose his way. The world seemed to broaden out. Everything, it is true, was as yet wan and spectral and ill-defined. But the silence was no longer awful. He had no further fear of the mist coming along to isolate him in the dark. By slow degrees, under the widening light of the sky, the various features of this wild country began to take more definite shape. Down there in the south lay the mighty mass of Benmore. On his right rose the sterile altitudes of Ben Uid, and at last, and quite suddenly, he came in view of the ruffled silvery surface of Loch Ascent, and the cottages of Inquadamf, and the grey ruins of the Ardrock Castle on the promontory jutting out into the lake. The worst of the sore fight with solitude and the night was over. He gained the road, and his long swinging stride now stood him in good stead. Loch Ascent was soon left behind. He followed the windings of the river inward. Finally he came in sight of the scattered little hamlet facing the western sea, with its bridge and its church and its pleasant woods and slopes, looking also cheerful and homelike. And there also was the red funnel Klausmann that was to carry him away to the south. 4. That long and difficult struggle to get out to the western coast in time had so far demanded all his energy and attention. But now, 
in enforced idleness as a heavy steamer ploughed her way through the blue waters of the mink his mind could go back upon what had happened the preceding night and could also look forward with all sorts of dark and indefinite forebodings he began to recall his first association with flora campbell when she came to ochnaver lodge to help the old housekeeper there he remembered how neat and trim she looked when she walked into the straitly free church of a sunday morning and how shy she was when he got to know her well enough to talk a little with her when they met in their native tongue their courtship and engagement had the entire approval of flora's master and mistress for the old housekeeper at the lodge was now past work and they proposed to install hector's wife in her place and give her a permanent situation the wedding was to be in february or march in april the young wife was to move into the lodge to get it ready for the gentlemen coming up for the salmon fishing when the fishing and shooting of the year was over flora could return to her husband's cottage and merely look in at the lodge from time to time to light a fire or two and keep the place aired meanwhile for this present winter she had taken a situation in oban she was a west highland girl and had remained there until summoned away to Grenock by the serious illness of her sister such was the situation but who could tell now what was to become of all those fair prospects and plans was it to bid a last farewell to them and to him that the young highland girl had appeared saying good-bye with such mournful eyes the small parlour in his cottage was she never to see the little adornments he had placed there all for her sake well then if what he feared had come true no other woman should enter and take possession there were dreams of canada of cape colony of australia in his brain as he sat there with bent brow and heavy heart taking hardly any heed of the new shores they were now nearing this anguish of brooding became at length insupportable in despair he went to the stevedore and said he would be glad to lend a hand with a cargo as soon as the steamer was alongside the quay in stornoway harbour and right hard he worked too hour after hour feeding the steam crane that was swinging crates and boxes over and down into the hold the time passed more easily in this fashion his chum was a good-natured young fellow who seemed rather proud of his voice at times he sang snatches of gaelic songs myri pin meol shuliach mary of the bewitching eyes or eit in kaidil and ribbon where sleepest thou dear maiden they were familiar songs but there was one still more familiar that woke strange echoes in his heart for flora campbell was a west country girl and of course her favourite was the well-known fierabata i climb the mountains and scan the ocean for thee my boatman with fond devotion when shall i see thee to-day to-morrow oh do not leave me in lonely sorrow oh my boatman mahoro ailia oh my boatman nahoro ailia oh my boatman nahoro ailia oh my boatman nahoro ailia a hundred farewells to you wherever you may be going that is how it begins in the english but it was the gaelic phrases that haunted his brain and brought him remembrance of flora's crooning voice and of a certain autumn evening when he and she and some others went all the way down lochnaver to invermoodal flora and he sitting together in the stern of the boat and all of them singing the fiera bata the clansmen left stornoway that same night groaning and thundering through the darkness on a way to sky hector did not go below into the fore cabin he remained on deck watching the solitary ray of some distant lighthouse or perhaps turning his gaze upon the great throbbing vault overhead where cassiopeia sat throned upon her silver chair more than once an aerolite shot swiftly across the clear heavens leaving a faint radiance for a second or so in its wake but he took no heed of these portents now 
In other circumstances they might mean something, but now a more direct summons had come to him from the unknown world. The message had been delivered, though he had been unable to understand it, and he knew that what was to happen had now happened in that far town of Grenach. And all the slow hours went by, his impatience and longing increasing almost to despair. The dark loom of land in the south appeared to come no nearer. The monotonous throbbing of the screws seemed as if it were to go on forever, and as yet there was no sign of the dawn. But the new day, which promised to be quite insupportable in its tedium and in its fears, in reality brought him some distraction, and that was welcome enough. At Portree there came on board a middle-aged man of rather mean aspect, with broken nose, long upper lip, and curiously set small grey eyes. He carried a big bag, which apparently held all his belongings, and that he threw on to the luggage on the forward deck. "'Where's this going to?' called the stevedore. "'Sure, tis bound for the same place as myself,' said the newcomer facetiously. "'And that's Philadelphia, big gob.' "'We don't call there,' retorted the stevedore dryly. "'And you'd better stick to your bundle if you want to say it at Greenock.' And very soon it became apparent that the advent of this excited and voluble Irishman had brought new life into the steerage portion of the ship. He had had a glass or two of whiskey. He talked to everybody within hearing about himself, his plans, his former experiences of the United States. And when graveled for lack of matter, he would fall back on one invariable refrain. Oh, big gob! The Americans are the boys! And in especial were his confidences bestowed on Hector McIntyre, the shy and reserved Highlander, listening passively and without protest to Parry's wild asseverations. "'Oh, the Americans are the devils, and no mistake!' he exclaimed. "'But let me tell you this, sir, that there's one there's cleverer than them, and that's the Irish boy, big gob. Sure, they talk about the German vote, ah, oh, blatherstein. Tis the Irish vote, sir, that's the master, and we've got the newspapers. And where would the Republicans or the Democrats be without us? Tell me that I've ye place. In this old country, the Irishman is a slave. In America, he's the master, and every mother's son of them knows it. Ah, by God, sir, that's the place for a man. This old country isn't fit for a pig to live in. America is the place. You might bet your life on it, sir. And suddenly it occurred to Hector that he might gain some information, even from this blathering foe. His thoughts had been running much on emigration during those lonely hours he had passed. If what he dreaded had really taken place, he would return no more to the lone moorlands and hills and lakes of Sutherlandshire. He would put the wide Atlantic between himself and certain memories. For him it would be Sorage Slan, Litier Mograith, a long farewell to Finnery. But at present the Irishman would not be questioned. The outflowing of his eloquence was not to be stopped. He was now dealing with the various classes and various institutions of Great Britain on each of which he bestowed the same epithet, that of bloody. The government, the newspaper editors, the House of Lords, the House of Commons, the clergy, the judges, the employers of labour, all were of the same ensanguined hue, and all were equally doomed to perdition as soon as Ireland had taken up a proper and inevitable position in America. Moreover, the tall and silent Highlander, as he sat and gazed upon the frothing creature, as if he were some strange phenomenon, some incomprehensible freak of nature could not but say that the man was perfectly in earnest. Look what they did to John Mitchell. Look at that now, John Mitchell. Hector had unfortunately never heard of John Mitchell, 
so he could not say anything. Dying by the roadside, John Mitchell, to be left to die by the roadside. Oh, think of that now. What do you say to that now? John Mitchell being left to die by the roadside. There were sudden tears in the deep sunken grey eyes, and the Irishman made no concealment as he wiped them away with his red cotton handkerchief. Well, I'm very sorry, Hector McIntyre replied in answer to this appeal, whoever he was. But what could they have done for the poor man? They could have given him a place, the other retorted with a sudden blaze of anger. All that John Mitchell wanted was a place. But they, ensanguined, government, what they do it? Oh, sir, they let him die by the roadside, John Mitchell, to die by the roadside. Well, I am thinking, said the forester slowly, as was his way when he had to talk in English, that if the government was to give places to all them that would like a place, why, the whole country would be in the public service, and there would be no one left to till the land. And do they give you a place when you go to America? Ah, be gobbed, sir, said the Irishman with a shrewd twinkle in his eye. We get our share. Hector could not make out whether his new acquaintance had been to Portray to say good-bye to some friends before he crossed the Atlantic, or whether he had been engaged in the Crofter agitation, which was then attracting attention in Sky. On this latter subject, Parry discoursed with a vehement volubility, and a gay and audacious ignorance, but here Hector was on his own ground, and had to interfere. "'I am thinking you will not be knowing much about it,' he observed with a calm frankness. The great highland clearances, they were not made for deer at all. They were not made for sportsmen at all. They were made for sheep, as many a landlord knows to cost this day, when he has the sheep farms on his lands and cannot get them let. And the deer forests, they are the worst land in a country where the best land is poor. And if they were to be cut up into crofts tomorrow, there is not one crofter in twenty would be able to earn his living, even if he was to get the croft for no rent at all. Oh, yes, I am as sorry as any one for the poor people when they increase in their families on such poor land. But what would be the use of giving them more peat hogs and rocks? Can a man live whether neither deer nor sheep nor black cattle can live? And even the deer come down in the winter and go wandering for miles in search of a blade of bent grass. However, the Irishman could not accept these representations in any wise. He suspected this grave, brown-bearded Highlander of being an accomplice and hireling of the ensanguined landlords, and he might have gone on to denounce him, or even to provoke an appeal to fisticuffs, which would have been manifestly imprudent, had it not suddenly occurred to him that they might go down below and have a glass of whisky together. Hector saw him disappear into the fore-cabin by himself, and was perhaps glad to be left alone. Steadily, the great steamer clove her way upward by the islands of Rasay and Scalpa, through the narrows of Kyle Akane and Kyle Rea, past the lighthouse and opening to Isle Orsney, and down toward the wooded shores of Armadale. The day was fair and still. The sea was of an almost summer-like blue, save for long swaths of silver calm. The sun shone on the lower green slopes that seemed so strangely voiceless, and on the higher peaks and shoulders of the hills, where every quarry and watercourse was a thread of azure among the ethereal rose-greys of the far-reaching summits. Even the wild Arnamurehan, the headland of the great waves, had not a flake of cloud clinging to its beetle-cliffs, and the long smooth roll that came in from the outer ocean was almost imperceptible. Toward evening the clansmen sailed into Oban Bay. 
The world seemed all on fire, so far as sea and sky were concerned, but Carrera lay in shadow, a cold and livid green, while between the crimson water and crimson heavens stood the distant mountains of Mole, and they had grown to be of a pale, clear, transparent rose purple, so that they seemed a mere film thinner than any icing glass. 5. There was abundance of time for him to go ashore and make inquiries, but nothing had been heard of Flora Campbell since she had left. However, he managed to get the address of her sister, Mary Campbell, and with that in his possession he returned on board. Thereafter the monotonous voyage was resumed, away down by the long peninsula of Kentire, and round the mole, up again through the estuary of the Clyde, until at four o'clock on the Friday afternoon the clansmen drew into Greenock Quay, and Hector McIntyre knew that within a few minutes he would learn what fate had in store for him for good or irretrievable ill. He found his way to the address that had been given him, a temperance hotel at which Mary Campbell was head laundry maid. But Mary Campbell's was no longer there. She had been removed when she was taken ill, and, as she would not go into a hospital, according to familiar prejudice amongst many of her class, lodgings had been found for her. Thither Hector went forthwith, to a slummy little by-street, where after many inquiries he found the land and the clothes that he sought. He ascended the grimy and dusky stone stairs. When he had nearly reached the top floor, he was met by a stout, stout elderly man who had just shut a door behind him. Is there one Mary Campbell livin' here? He made bold to ask in English. Aye, that there is, said the stranger, fixing keen eyes on him. Are you come for news of her? I am the doctor. Yes, yes, Hector said, but could say no more. His heart was beating like to choke him. He fixed his eyes on the doctor's face. You'll be one of her highland cousins, eh? You dinna look like a town-bred lad said the brusque and burly doctor, with a sort of facetious good humour. Well, well, Mary is getting on right enough. You might as well go in and cheer her up a bit. The two lasses didn't seem to have many friends. But, but Flora, said the forester, with his hungry, haggard eyes, still watching every expression of the doctor's face. The other one? Indeed, she has had the fever worse than her sister. I wasn't sure one night but that she would go. McIntyre seemed to hear no more. Flora was alive, was within a few yards of him. He stood there quite dazed. His eyes were averted. He was breathing heavily. The doctor looked at him for a moment or two. "'Maybe it's the sister you're anxious about,' said he, bluntly. "'Well, she's no out of the wood yet, but she has a fair chance. What, man, what's the matter with ye? It's not such ill news.' "'No, no, it's very good news.' Hector said in an undertone as if to himself, I was fearing something. Can I see the lass? I was not hearing from her for a while. But he could not explain what had brought him hither. He instinctively knew that this south countryman would laugh at his highland superstition, would say that his head had been stuffed full of Halloween nonsense, or that at most what he had imagined he had seen, and the fact that Flora Campbell had fallen seriously ill formed but a mere coincidence. Oh, yes, you can see her the doctor said, with rough good nature. But I'll just go in beforehand to give her a bit of warning. You can talk to her sister for a minute or two. She's sitting up now, and soon she'll have to begin and nurse her sister, as her sister did her until she took the fever. Come away, lad. What's your name, did ye say? Hector McIntyre. Flora will know very well where I am from. The doctor knocked at the door, 
which was presently opened by a young girl, and while he left Hector to talk to the elder sister, who was lying propped up on a rude couch in a rather shabby little apartment, he himself went into an inner room. When he came out, he again looked at Hector curiously. "'Now I understand why you were so anxious,' said he with a familiar smile. "'Thou came ye to hear she was ill. She says she did not want ye to ken anything about it until she was on the high road to getting better.' Hector did not answer him. He only looked toward the door that had been partially left open. "'Go in, then,' said the doctor. "'And dinna stay over long, my lad, for she had little strength to waste in talking as yet.' Timidly, like a schoolboy, this big strong man entered the sick room, and it was gently and on tiptoe, lest his heavily nailed boots should make any noise. That he went forward to the bedside. Flora lay there, pale and emaciated, but there was a smile of surprise and a welcome in the dark blue highland eyes, and she tried to lift her wasted hand to meet us. What they had to say to each other was said in the Gaelic tongue. "'It is sorry I am to say you like this,' said he, sitting down and keeping her hand in his own. "'But the doctor says you are now in a fair way to get better, and it is not from this town I am going until I take you with me, Flora, girl of my heart. The Sutherland air will be better for you than the Grenach air, and your sister Mary will come with you for a while, and both of you will take my little cottage, and Mrs. Matheson will give me a bed at Achnava Lodge.' I am sure Mr. Lennox would not object to that. But, Hector, how did he know that I was ill? The sick girl said, and her eyes did not leave his eyes for a moment. I was not wishing you to know I was ill, to give you trouble, till I could write to you that I was better. How did I know? He answered gravely. It was you yourself who came to tell me. What is it that you say, Hector? She said, in some vague alarm. On Halloween night, he continued, in the same serious, simple tones. I was at Invermoodal. Perhaps I was not caring much for the diversions of the lads and lasses. I walked up the road by myself, and there your wraith appeared to me as clear as I see you now. When I went back and told Mr. Moray, he said, Did she come forward to you, Hector, or did she go away? She is in great danger. It is a warning, and if she went away from you, you will say her no more. But if she came forward, she is getting better. You will see Flora again. I knew that myself, but I could not answer him, and my heart said to me that I must find out for myself, that I must go to seek you, and I set out that night and walk across the Ray Forest to Loch Inver and caught the steamer there. What I have been thinking since I left Loch Inver until this hour, I cannot tell you or to anyone living. Hector, she asked, what night was Halloween night? I have not been thinking of such things. It was the night of Tuesday, he answered. And that, she said in a low voice, was the night that my fever took the turn. Mary told me they did not expect me to be alive in the morning. We will never speak of it again, Flora, said he, for there are things that we do not understand. And then he added, but now that I am in Crenach, it is in Crenach I mean to remain until I can take you away with me, and Mary too, for Sutherland air is better than Crenach air for a Highland lass. Ain't sure I am that Mr. Lennox will not grudge me having a bed at Achnava Lodge, and you will get familiar with the cottage, Flora, where I hope you will soon be mistress, and then there will be no more occasion for a great distance between you and me, or for the strange things that sometimes happen when people are separated the one from the other. End of The Halloween Wraith by William Black Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama